every 25 verses on average, you're going to have a reference to the return of Christ. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books, so only four, do not refer at all to the return of Christ. 23 out of 27 always have some kind of teaching regarding the return of Christ. And here's one that really got me. Because we think a lot about the first advent and Christmas and all of that and the coming of the Lord uh, the first time. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, there are eight which are found concerning his second advent. Eight to one. Think about that. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning his first advent, there are eight prophecies regarding his return. That's how significant the return of Christ is. And I hope that one of the things that all of us will gain through this study is that prophecy, and, and especially the return of Christ, has a, should have a dramatic effect on how we're living our lives right here and now, because that's what God intended. It wasn't just pie in the sky, by and by, I'm just going to go and sit somewhere on top of a mountain in the lotus position and just hum and wait for Jesus to return. That, that there's a lot that God is looking for, if you will, that should be fueled, and I think that's a good word, it should be fueled, motivated, and inspired by the teaching of Christ's return. Now, I'll say this up front as well. Some Christians, as they read their Bible, get confused because in some of the passages and in some of the verses, it's hard to differentiate between the rapture, where Jesus Christ comes for his saints and never sets foot on earth, as the Bible teaches, and we're going to be looking at all these passages, compared to his second coming, where he comes with his saints and he literally sets foot on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to begin his kingdom on earth. The rapture and the second coming sometimes are sort of both referred to. They are technically separated by seven years. The rapture happens at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. The second coming happens at the end it is sort of the culmination of what the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon, even though it's not really a battle. There is no battle that takes place. The armies of the world are gathered and surrounded uh, Israel, and Jesus comes back in all of his glory, and with one word, he defeats all the nations of the world. And again, we're going to be looking at those passages. But I want to begin in Acts chapter 1, where we first of all have an angel announcing to the disciples that Jesus is going to come back. It's sort of the first reference, if you will, to the return of Jesus right after he goes back up to heaven. Look in verse 11. Well, let's begin in verse 10. We'll pick it up there. As they were still staring into the sky while he was going suddenly... Two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee. Why did the angel refer to the disciples as men of Galilee? 
because every one of them except for Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, was from the region of Galilee. And it was like the angel was trying to bring them back down to earth and anchor them where they were from. Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? It's almost like he's gently chiding them for doing so, even though could they be blamed for that? I mean, they've just seen Jesus after he's appeared for 40 days on the earth, after his resurrection, literally just float up into the sky. The Bible says a cloud sort of hit him after he got up so high and he just disappeared. And the angel then appears and says these words, this same Jesus, this same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come back. That's the big significant statement or prophecy of the angel as soon as Jesus ascends into heaven. This same Jesus, the one that you've been with for the last few years, who you have followed, who you've seen crucified on a cross, who you've seen raised from the dead, this same Jesus who you now see ascending into heaven, he's coming back. And notice, in the same way that you saw him go. Well, he went up, he's going to now come down from heaven in the clouds or with the clouds. And in both instances, whether you're talking about the rapture or the second coming, both his presence is surrounded in or with the clouds. But I don't want us to just, again, look at these prophecies and go, okay, Jesus is coming back without somehow giving us application and relevancy to our everyday Christian life. So what's that mean for me? Well, notice up beginning in verse 8 of that very same passage. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. And after he said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. What is it that connects with the return of Christ? It is that until Jesus comes back, we are to be his witnesses. I want you to connect being a witness with the return of Christ because that's exactly what Jesus said right before he ascended up to heaven with the prophecy that he would come back from the angel who appeared to his disciples. I've given you power and I want you to be my witnesses. Let's talk about those two things for a minute. First of all, in that you see in verse 8 that Jesus in a sense is equipping his followers. He's saying before he ever enlists them to do something for him that I will give you what you need for the assignment that I'm going to give you, for the uh, role or responsibility that I want you to carry out, okay? Now, that's important for all of us to remember 
that regardless of what we're talking about in the Bible, when it comes to our responsibility as Christians, whatever God calls us to, whatever God asks of us, whatever God wants us to do, first of all, he always equips us for the job. Okay, always. I mean, Peter said, we've been given everything necessary for life and godliness. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, Paul says to the Ephesians. We are complete in him, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. I mean, over and over and over again, we are equipped. And, and let's not forget something. Not only are we equipped for whatever God asks of us, so we can never say, well, God, you wanted me to do this, but you never gave me the equipment to do it. You never gave me the resources. You never outfitted me for this. God could say, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, yes, I did. I gave you everything that you needed. Just like here. I'm giving you power through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And let's not forget, let's for a moment just digress. What is the responsibility that Paul says the leaders of every local church has to the people who attend that local church? We are to equip the saints, for what? The work of the ministry. Whatever God has called us to, whatever God asks of each of us, whatever assignment we have, whatever God is enlisting us to do, it is now the spiritual leaders of the church's responsibility to make sure that everyone who attends that church is equipped and that's something I take very seriously. In other words, I feel like that's one of my main jobs as the pastor of this church, is that every time you come here, that you leave with maybe another tool in your spiritual tool belt, or that you are reminded of a tool that you already have, or that you are, you are enlightened by God or illuminated by God to... To, to a resource or something that you have that now you can take with you so that whatever you face Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you know, for the rest of the time till you come back, that you realize I've been equipped. I've been equipped. Because God wants to equip his saints. And God has placed some of that responsibility on the local church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to give the people who come the tools for their spiritual tool belt. Okay? But then notice, he also says, after he equips them, he enlists them. You will be my witnesses. Everywhere you go. And that same enlistment is something that God lays upon everyone in this room tonight. That until he comes back, he gives us power and equips us to be his witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? It means one who gives evidence. That's what a witness is, very simply. One who gives evidence. Evidence of what? Well, in this context, that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is alive that Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven, that Jesus is the Lord of glory who's coming back. And so every day it is our responsibility as Christ's followers to live in such a way that gives evidence to everyone around us that Jesus Christ is very much alive and he's 
equipping me and enabling me and empowering me to live in a very distinct way that will, that will set my life apart maybe from others so that eventually God can use our lives to draw others to the source of how are you doing what you're doing, you see? How are you able to do that? Well, Jesus is alive. And my life is going to give evidence. I mean, every ministry that we do, every service that we do shouldn't be what we can do in our own power and strength. You see, every ministry in the local church should be done in such a way and to such a depth that it's not just plug in place like a lot of churches do, where it's just like, let's see, we've got a role to fill or we've got a, we got a hole to fill in the church. Anybody want to fill it? And, you know, sometimes like, well, I'll do it because nobody else wants to do it, you know. And I'll get in there and I'll plug away and I'll try to give it my best shot and I'll try to do the best that I can do. And, man, they, and, 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 hey, they might be as sincere as all get out and, and really be giving it, as we say, the good old college try. But it's just what they can do. And God wants the church to be so different that it's not what we can do, but it's what Christ, who's still alive, who's ascended back to heaven, is doing through his people. Only what he can do. And if they can't see Jesus doing it through us, then we're not serving or ministering to the depth that God wants us to as his church, you see. Because we're supposed to be giving evidence that Jesus is alive. And, and it's, again, it's not just the pie in the sky, but he's alive in me. And he's enabling and equipping and empowering me to be able to do what I could only do through him, you see. That's all tied to Jesus coming back. Because that's what he wants the church to be involved with. I'll equip you, but I'm enlisting you. You every day give evidence that I'm not dead. I'm very much alive and I'm getting ready to come back. And I want you to live in light of my return every day, not being inactive or passive, but actually being very conscious and conscientious witnesses to who I am. That's Acts chapter 1. I want you to go over now to Philippians. Oh, you know what? Nah. Let's change that for a second. Let's go to the end of the Gospel of Luke, because I mentioned this at the beginning in my, before we did worship tonight. I, I just want to share this with you, because it, it's Luke's version of the ascension. Luke 24, the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 50 through 53. I love this passage because it, it just puts a little bit of a different angle on the ascension of Christ. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. That's significant. Why? Well, we're going to see this when we go to the Holy Land next year. Bethany is this little town that sits on the Mount of Olives. So that means it was next to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had that time with the father in the garden and the agony and all of that. In fact, very interestingly, the name Bethany means place of affliction. <laughs> That's what Jesus went through. And yet notice something here. Where's he ascending from? Bethany. Isn't that interesting that the place of his affliction was also the place of his ascension? 
Why is that? Because many times, listen to me, friends, many times in our life, the place of our humiliation is also the place of our exaltation. Sometimes God has to bring us low before we are raised up, you see. God has to get us in a position where we're ready to listen and, and do what he wants to do. And sometimes God has to bring us down before he raises us. Because God's n intent is never to bring us down to keep us down, but to bring us down and humble us so that we can be more dependent and reliant on him and he can bring us up. So anyway, he leads them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, which is what they did in that day to bless people. Jesus blessed his followers. And during the blessing, he departed and was taken up into heaven. And notice again the response of those that were there. They worshiped him. That's one. Then they returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. Notice they worshiped God in response to him leaving. Because <laughs> again, that wasn't a bad thing. He was coming back. Oh, and not only that, but his ascension proved that he defeated all the enemies he ever faced on earth. And if he defeated them, so can we through him. And it also reminds us that, yeah, and you know what? He's getting the glory now that he deserves again. Because for however long he was here on earth, he didn't receive that glory. He left the glories of heaven. He left the adoration of the angels. He left all of that heavenly praise to come here and assume a, a human body. But now he's back. And now he's getting the glory and, and, and the worth and, and all of that ascribed to him that he so richly deserves. So they worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And then notice, they were continually where? In the house of God. And what were they doing as a community of believers in the house of God? They were blessing God. It means they were praising and celebrating God. It was just what we were doing tonight. It's what worship is. Exalting, praising, celebrating God. That was their response to Jesus going up to heaven. And then the prophecy of the angel that he would come back. All right, now let's head to Philippians for just a moment. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Here's the next reference I want us to look at in regards to the return of the Lord. Paul starts out in verse 20 by saying, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where Jesus is, our citizenship. That held a lot of weight to the Philippians. Why? Because the Philippians, the, the, the town of Philippi, the city of Philippi, was far away from Rome, and yet, all the inhabitants of Philippi had been granted Roman Empire citizenship, meaning that they had all the rights and privileges of any Roman citizen, including those that lived in Rome itself. The Philippians had Roman citizenship. So when Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, you're not only a citizen of Philippi, you're a citizen of heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That resonated with them. That, that reminded them, we, even though we're here on earth, we can live as if we have all of the rights and privileges of, of those in heaven. And, and we live now not just according to the standards of this world, but to a higher standard. We live governed by the standards of heaven itself. But then notice what else he says. And we also await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. First of all, notice, as we talked about in Acts, in relationship to the return of Christ, there was the concept of witnessing. Here, I want us to look at it at, from the concept of watching. Watching. God wants his people not only to be witnessing, he wants us to be watching for the return of Jesus. That's what the word await means. It means to patiently and expectantly look forward every day to the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is looking away from the attraction and from what the world offers and, and watching for the return of our Savior. It is being captivated by Jesus and by the things of heaven, as Paul says to the Colossians, setting our affection on things above, not things on the earth. It is being captivated by those things, heavenly things, eternal things, spiritual things, and not being caught up by what the world or what the devil here on this earth offers us. Watching, you see. And you and I all know what this word what it captures even emotionally for us because if you're looking forward to seeing somebody, what do you do? You watch for them. I can remember as a little child, I didn't get to see my grandparents, my one set of grandparents very often. So when my mom and dad told me grandma and granddad were coming, I literally got up onto the couch where we had this big picture window where I could look out at the road that passed our house and I could just watch the cars go by and I would watch for their car to turn into the driveway. Because I, I wanted to see them and, and I couldn't wait to see them. And so I was watching. Even today, I had the opportunity to see a friend that I hadn't seen for a couple weeks, obviously, and I was watching for them to come so that we could spend some time together. That's what this word means. Because if, if we love the Lord, if he's important to us, if he means something to us, then we're going to be watching for his return every day. And that's then going to obviously then change the dynamic of the way we live here because we know that at any moment he could come. And listen... We live, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, we live in that hope that at any moment, very suddenly, unexpectedly, in a moment, as Paul says to the Corinthians, in the twinkling of an eye, he could come and everything could change in our lives. Everything. And so watch. It, it's almost like what God wants us to do in sort of a, a spiritual way is to keep one eye on our life here and what's going on here and obviously to live with alertness and all that, but also to keep one eye on the coming of Jesus at all times, to keep one eye both, you know? And didn't Jesus say this to his followers? Watch and pray over and over again. Watch, watch. He wasn't just referring to what's going on around us here. He was saying, 
Keep looking forward to my return and, and live in that hope that things aren't always going to be the way they are in our lives and, and on this earth, that suddenly and very dramatically, when I come, everything's going to change once and for all, and I will usher in my kingdom, and you will be part of that kingdom forever and ever, and you will serve and reign with me forever and ever. Look for that. Live in the hope of that. Let that shape the way you and I live our lives and the way we prioritize things in our lives. That's what it is. Witnessing, watching. And then also notice that he does tie this watching in to reminding us that when Jesus comes, one of the things that obviously we look forward to is that, oh, we're going to get a body like Jesus. Because he says he's going to enable, that's what the word transform means, he's going to enable us to exchange these humble bodies, these bodies that wear out, these bodies that are weak, these bodies that are fragile and feeble and get old and, and, and get debilitated and have sickness and illness and eventually death and all that. We get to exchange through Christ these humble bodies and we get a glorious body in the likeness of his glorious body. Now, not exactly because we don't become gods, but when you start to think about, well, what was Jesus' glorified body like? What was he able to do that we will be able to do? Let me just give you a couple things. Some supernatural, some not so much, but it starts to whet our appetite when we get to the part about what's heaven going to be like. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, you remember the story where the disciples were all there and they were scared and they locked all the doors and all of a sudden Jesus just passed through the locked door and he appeared? Guess what? You and I one day are going to be able to do that. We're just going to be able to pass from one place to another and it doesn't matter if there's a barrier there or not because our body is going to be just like his and his could do that, so ours will do that. How about ascending? His body just went from earth and just floated up and was able to go on its own. He didn't have to get in, Jesus didn't have to get in an airplane, a helicopter, you know, put on a jet pack or anything else. No, no. His glorious body just was able to move through space and time. And guess what? Ours will be able to do the same. But then in a very humble way, after he rose from the dead, the Bible says he also came to his disciples when they were around the Sea of Galilee and they were eating. And Jesus said, what do you got for dinner? And they said, well, we got some fish. He said, serve me up some. And in his glorified body, he ate some grilled fish, the Bible says. So that tells us that even in our glorified state, we'll be able to eat <laughs> and drink. Because he talks about drinking wine with him in the kingdom. So, again, in some ways, very natural, doing things that we do here on earth, doing things that we're used to, but in other ways, doing things that we're not used to. Like sort of flying and going through, you know, walls and stuff like that. We're not used to that. So, again, that's the kind of body God's going to give us. But more importantly, the emphasis here is on the fact that because our body ages and wears out and all of that, we have to die. The body we get there lasts for all of eternity. No more sickness, no more illness, no more pain, no more death, no more nothing. The body that he gives us then 
will be a body fit for eternity, a body fit for heaven, a body that can do what God wants us to do for all of eternity. He will equip us with a body for what he's going to enlist us to do for all of eternity. And then finally tonight, Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. By the way, in these three verses, you really have a summary of justification, sanctification, and glorification here. In verse 11, you have justification. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's sort of the first advent when Jesus came. What was it characterized by? He brought grace so that we could be saved and have a right relationship with God. Then verse 12, sanctification, the way we should live our Christian lives. It trains us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's also what the grace of God does. But then glorification. As we wait, verse 13, for the happy fulfillment of our hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, we saw that in relationship to the return of Christ, we should be witnessing, and from Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we saw in relationship to the return of Christ, we should be watching then in Titus 2.13, in relationship to the return of Christ, we should be waiting. But remember something. What does wait mean in the New Testament? Again, I've used this before, but it's so appropriate tonight. Think of going out to eat. A waiter or a waitress is not somebody who just sits and is very passive and inactive. A good waiter or a good waitress in your favorite place to eat when you go out is somebody who's very attentive, very active, making sure that you have everything you need when you want it. And so there's a lot of activity to waiting. See, waiting is not just sitting and waiting. No, no. Waiting is being Active. In fact, the word in the New Testament means to stay at one's post. It sort of a, has a military piece to it. It's like a soldier who's always on duty, who's never says, I'm checking out. No. So whatever post God calls us to, whatever he enlists us to do, we should stay at that post until, notice, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to wait. So it means to be active and working, being at our post as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, doing what God is asking and calling us to do until he returns. So you can see here, even in this first night of talking about the return of Christ, how practical and relevant it is and how it should fuel the way we live our lives. It should be a motivation to witness. It should be a motivation to watch. And it should be a motivation and an inspiration to wait on the Lord. Because the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior is our hope. It is how you and I can prosper even on earth because, again, we know that at any moment Jesus Christ could appear. And by the way, 
why Paul describes it as the glorious appearing is because he's talking about the sudden, shining radiance of God's person. It is not even the glory, if you will, that surrounds God, which the Bible talks about a lot. It is literally the glory of the perfection of God himself that will radiate out of Jesus Christ. Think of the transfiguration and, and literally lights up the universe. In fact, we know that the book of Revelation tells us that in heaven one day, when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, there will not be any need of the sun or of stars or of that kind of light because literally the glory that is God's person will light up his new universe. That's, that's glory, my friends. And guess what? Going back to the previous thing we said, God's going to give us a glorified body that, to be able to see and, and to take in his glory without just sort of vaporizing and melting because we can't take it. No, God's going to make sure that the heavenly eyeballs, if you will, that he gives us in our glorified body can literally gaze upon him. And as John says, when we see him, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That's going to be amazing because we're going to see him in a way we've never seen him up to that point because we're going to see him in all of his radiance and all of his brightness and all of his splendor and all of his majesty. All of it will be on display and that's why Paul says, we're waiting for that <laughs> and I'm going to be so active Paul says we all should be so active as we stay at our post and be faithful and do what God's called us to do up to that time because we're going to be so glad we did when we see the sudden brightness and radiance of God's person. By the way, I love it. He also says, oh, by the way, he's our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, which also is a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? To those that deny that Jesus Christ is God himself 100%, Paul could not have said it any plainer. He connects great God with Savior and says, that's Jesus Christ. Well, let me take you to one other verse tonight that really brings it home to why God spends so much time teaching his New Testament saints about his return and how he wants it to be a motivation, an inspiration, a fuel for how we live our lives right here and now. Turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is teaching about his return. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. All of us want to hear, hopefully one day, from the lips of our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Well, notice here Jesus sort of gives us an idea of how that can happen. He says in verse 45 of Matthew 24, who then is the faithful and wise slave or servant whom the master has put in charge of his household to give the other slaves their food at the proper time? Here it is, verse 46, key verse. Blessed is that slave whom the master finds, what? At work. 
when he comes. And then he goes on to explain a little bit more about that. That's what I want us to get tonight because that's exactly what the word wait means. In a sense, it's the same thing. To be working when he comes. Not to be lazy, not to be complacent, not, not to, you know, just sit back and, and, and live off of our laurels of our past spiritual life and what we've done in the past. No, as we said several weeks ago, to keep it current, to keep it fresh, to keep it new, to always be out there doing what God calls us to do. But again, to never do it in our own power and strength, but in the resources and the equipment and the power that God will give us. Because as we're going to see Sunday, if you come back Sunday as we go back into Luke and return to our series throughout the Gospel of Luke, that God always has a perfect, well-fitted responsibility for those that are willing to take it. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. And learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The words simply mean that God has a very uniquely well-fitted responsibility for each of us so that if we would just trust him and embrace what God has for us, it's not something that's going to weigh us down, wear us out, crush us underneath its load and all of that. No, it'll be something that perfectly suits and fits us. And nobody knows us better than our creator. So whatever God has for us that he's enlisting us to do, and each and every one of us is the saints of God, has a part to play in his kingdom on earth right now. Jesus saying, are you, are you doing it? Because blessed is the servant whom the master finds at work when he comes back. You see, that's the one who will hear, well done, good. Not the one who, you know, 10 years ago was doing what God wanted them to do, but now they're just sliding for home. No. Each season of our life, each year of our life, each stage of our life, God has something for us. A post, if you will, that he wants us to be at and stay at and be faithful at through every season and stage of our life. And he wants to see us faithful to that up until the time he comes. This is one of the reasons, and we're going to get to more in the coming weeks, one of the reasons why the New Testament is filled, one out of every 25 verses, with a reference to Jesus' coming. Because Jesus wants each of his children to live in light of his return every day. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for the hope that we have that, God, things aren't always going to stay this way and be this way, both in our own lives and on this earth. That, God, one day you're going to come in all of your glory and things are going to dramatically and forever change and we're going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, for this mortal must put on immortality. And these humble bodies will be transformed to be like your glorious body forever and ever. And God, I pray tonight 
that in light of your return, we have been reminded that we need to be witnessing, we need to be watching, and we need to be waiting until you come. Lord, give us that that fuel every day. May we be like that little child that gets up in that window and just says, Jesus, before this day ends, I could see you. So I'm going to live today in light of the fact that before this day ends, I may see you, Lord. God, thank you for all those that came out tonight. Would you continue to grow us as your people and do a work in our lives that only you, the Lord, can do. Do a work through us, God, as your people that only you, as God, can do. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.